Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And we'll continue with our uh, hymn of the month, I Know My Faith is Founded. I know my faith is founded on Jesus Christ, my God and Lord, and this my faith confessing, unmoved I stand on his sure word, our reason cannot fathom the truth of God profound. Who trust in human wisdom relies on shifting ground. God's word is all sufficient, it makes divinely sure. And trusting in its wisdom, my faith shall rest secure. Increase my faith, dear Savior, for Satan seeks by night and day to rob me of this treasure and take my hope of bliss away. But Lord, with you beside me, I shall be undismayed. And led by your good spirit, I shall be unafraid. Abide with me, O Savior, a firmer faith bestow. Then I shall bid defiance to every evil foe. In faith, Lord, let me serve you, though persecution, grief, and pain should seek to overwhelm me. Let me a steadfast trust retain, and then at my departure, Lord, take me home to you. Your riches to inherit as all you said holds true. In life and death, Lord, keep me until your heaven I gain. Where I by your great mercy 
and the faith of All right, we'll continue with the catechism memory work. How can bodily eating and drinking do such great things? Certainly not just eating and drinking do these things, but the words written here, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. These words, along with the bodily eating and drinking, are the main thing in the sacrament. Whoever believes these words has exactly what they say, forgiveness of sins. And the Bible memory work, and you can repeat after me phrase by phrase. For as often as you eat this bread, and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 1 Corinthians 11:26. And all together. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 1 Corinthians 11:26. We'll continue with the Lord's prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And Luther's morning prayer, I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger, and I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil, that all my doings in life may please you. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. The Almighty and merciful Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bless us and keep us. Amen. All right, kids go off to Sunday school. All right, so um, as far as the uh, hymnody goes, um, I'm going to talk a little bit about practical ways that you can be more confident in singing. So we talked about the importance of that last week, that uh, the importance of congregational singing, that God wants his people to make a joyful noise unto the Lord, and that he commands uh, all his people to sing songs, uh, psalm songs and spiritual songs. Uh, and and hymns, psalms, yeah, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. I think that's how it goes in Ephesians. I think that's Ephesians four, um, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, the the singing is really something that that I think all people can do to a certain degree, right? We kind of talked about that. That um, some people are obviously going to have a more natural talent for it. But but even people who don't have a natural talent for it can become proficient in it, right? So kind of like everyone can learn to some degree to read and write for the most part. Um, some people are going to be better writers and some people are going to be faster readers. But everyone can – it's a skill that can be developed. So my practical advice, um, I have like three things in my head that this is probably not what a voice teacher would start with. I don't know. Um, I've never taken voice lessons. Uh, I just 
um, have picked up a few things here and there along the way. And uh, these are the things that have kind of stuck out to me in, in my head. Um, both my music people are not uh, here. Rebecca's teaching Sunday school and Donna's gone. So no one's here to correct me, which is good. Uh, yeah, that's right. Um, but the, f- the first thing is, and this probably is something a voice teacher would start with, the, probably the most important thing is breath. And whenever you sing, you want to breathe deeply. Uh, you, want, you, want to, um, you want to fill up your lungs with, with air. So you have, the more air you have, the better tone, uh, the better quality the sound of your voice is going to be. And uh, to, to breathe, uh, you, you always hear breathe from your diaphragm. Uh, when you are singing from your diaphragm. So you don't want to be singing from your chest, right? You don't want to be singing uh, just with just a short breath, like, and then try and sing like this, where you're very, everything's very constricted and tight. You want to take a deep breath. And the way that I was taught to make sure that you're taking a deep breath is, um, and then this, it becomes natural over time. You don't have to do this every time, but um, is, well, it's better generally to breathe through your nose, but that's kind of neither here or there. Uh, whenever you breathe in, breathe in very deep, try and fill up your lungs and make sure that your uh, stomach, uh, which is your stomach is in front of your lungs, right? So whenever you breathe in, your stomach should be going out. It should be expanding. Um, and a lot of people breathe in and they actually try and fill up their chest instead of their lungs. Um, they'll breathe in and suck in though, like that. And that's, it's actually not... Uh, you're not really getting a lot of air that way. You're just getting air just in the upper airways, but you want to fill up your your lungs all the way. So take a deep breath in and fill up your your lungs so and that your stomach would actually expand. And then whenever you talk or whenever you sing, your stomach should actually be gradually going back in. So um, I know my faith is founded and it comes out a lot more confidently than if I, I can't, I kind of can't do it the wrong way now because I've learned that, but I know my faith is founded. It's like a lot more constricted, right? So um, I'm not the best person to teach these things, but um, but again, this again, I think scripturally singing is actually commanded uh, for everybody and congregate. Lutherans have always been the best at congregational singing. Um you might think we're not like the best congregation at singing of all time, but uh, if you go to a Catholic church and and they, they sing hymns like we do, they don't do a lot of contemporary for the most part, but um, most people are going to be standing there like this during the hymns. Uh, that that The Lutherans have always been big on singing. I mean, Luther wrote hymns. Uh, you know, Bach was a Lutheran, right? We have We have a very rich heritage of music. So uh, that's the first thing is, is uh, deep breath, fill up all the lungs all the way. Uh, the second thing is when uh, you sing, especially vowels and um, in general, try and keep things open and round. And that kind of goes with the, the deep breath is uh, basically whenever you sing, you want things to be as least restricted as possible because you want to be confident and, and uh, have have some volume behind it. And the more open things are, the bigger breath you have, the, uh, the more confident it's going to be. And the, and the more you're going to hit the right notes. 
um, the more you'll be able to hit the right notes. So, uh, for, for instance, um, on Jesus Christ, my God, God and Lord. How's it going? Um, whenever you sing all those vows, on Jesus Christ, my, my God and Lord, um, sometimes you're going to sing things, to sing them correctly, you're going to sing things not the way you would speak them. So we would say, if we were speaking that, we'd say, on Jesus Christ, my God and Lord. When you sing God and Lord, you actually want to sing something more like God and Lord. You want to keep that those O's like like a circle, right? Not not like a kind of, this is how we tend to say O's, if you can kind of visualize it, is like, ah, ah. Um, but you want to go, oh, oh, on Jesus Christ, my God and Lord. When you actually sing it, it sounds normal that way. On Jesus Christ, my God and Lord. Um, keeps things a lot more open and uh, unrestricted and a lot less nasally, right? A lot less uh, restricted. So open vowels is, is the, my second thing. And my, my third thing, um, if I remember, I have these listed in my head. Um, breath, uh, open vowels, and can anyone read my mind? Um, let's see, deep breaths, open vowels. There was another thing I was going to talk about. Oh, I remember. Um, on high notes, this is the thing that always gets people. They say, I can't sing high notes. It's too high. The hymn's too high. Things are too high. Um, and I, again, these are skills that can be developed, right? So some people, even, even uh, bass voices can get higher than you, you probably think. And everyone has what we call a head voice, right? Or kind of a falsetto. Um, and it's very common to, uh, th- this is something that took me a while because I thought when I started uh, kind of singing in college and stuff um, for liturgical and um, singing hit for hymn purposes, I thought, well, I'm a guy, so I have to be a baritone or a bass, and um, if, especially if I want to be like a, like a real man, you know. And so um, I'm not going to ever sing anything high. And it took me not long to figure out I don't actually have a low voice. I have more of a tenor voice. And that's fine because God makes different people differently and there's not actually anything inherent to masculinity with having a, a bass or a baritone voice. Um, and it's when, when you go to sing high notes um, to get more into the brass tacks of it, it's okay to use your head voice. It just You just have to learn to control it. Um, so there's not actually like a ton of uh, super high notes in this hymn, but a lot of hymns will go up to a D or to an E and uh, on the on the melody line, and people will kind of drop out at that point. Um, but it's okay to to switch into your head voice too, um, and you just kind of got to play with it to figure out how you do that personally. Uh, but I'll see if I can kind of do it while singing some of this here. Who trust in human wisdom? Uh, that's not the right line. Hold on. Truth of God profound, 
who trust in human wisdom, relies on shifting ground. Those weren't actually the right notes, but you can kind of can you kind of hear how I switch up into that? Uh, it's a little bit lighter, a little bit uh, airier of a voice um, when you switch into your head voice, where you're not actually singing all the way down from, and you're trying to get you know all the way deep um, voice, but you kind of let it you let it float. And the way that I was taught to sing high notes is um, you kind of you try and kind of soar. You kind of uh, let your voice float above the note, if you will. Um, some of this is kind of just visualization, but that those kind of things um, I can I can give more advice. I'm not again I'm not really the person to ask about this. Rebecca could actually give give you more better advice about all of that, but. The point, my I guess the main takeaway with all three of those things, with deep breaths and um, what was the other thing I said? Open, open sounds and and kind of soaring uh, above high notes, not being afraid to use even your your head voice or your falsetto uh, to get up there if you struggle with high notes, especially if you're a guy. Um, all of those things really have to do with just kind of confident singing, right? That the the way you get better at singing is by practicing, and the way that you practice is by actually doing it, and the way that you actually do it is by doing it confidently. Yeah. Well, and I, no, I, I really think in the congregation, you gotta, you gotta put yourself out there a little bit, and uh, let let people hear your voice, and you know if um, no one's no one's gonna tell you to stop singing, uh, except. Rose's son, uh, yeah, right. <laughs> okay, no one tell anyone to stop singing. I, I am firmly against this. Uh, I think that it really is better um, to, to practice and to learn and to get better than it is to just kind of say, I'm not good at this, right? Um, so anyway, that's in some ways that's life advice, but theologically, I think that Singing really is actually important. When you look at the way that the Psalms talk about singing, um, that that Paul talks about singing in the Christian churches, is something we've been doing forever uh, as as Christians, and it's something God built into creation. Um, music is built into creation, right? Music is the combination of the math that's built into creation and sound that's built into creation, and Music, if you think about music, it accompanies basically any kind of event or major thing in life uh, that goes on. I mean, at a graduation, there's music. At, uh, at a party, there's music. At, at church, there's music. In the car, there's music, right? There's music that fits basically any occasion. And so we have music that God, I think, in his wisdom throughout time and history has given us for the church that is fitting for the church, for worship. And so it would be to be bad stewards of us to not try and sing that music, uh, to, to, to not try and partake fully in that, in that gift of creation. So um, anyway, that's why, that's why I've been talking about hymnody. Yeah.
that over the months they gradually asked me to get by, but you know, now I'm in the car. <laughs> the only time I sing real good the way I like to is when I was in the car with my grandchildren and we would sing, we all live in the yellow side. There you go. <laughs> yeah, Steve. Yeah, it always sounds much better in the shower. Too. Yeah, it does. Yeah, reverb. But we got some pretty good. We got some good reverb in here, so it's, uh, you know, that this uh, this room is not the best for certain things, but it is actually pretty good for for organ and congregational singing. So. Um, yeah, it's very live, right? So, it would not it would not be good for electric guitars, but it is okay for for sing, for congregational singing. So, um, yeah, and I think everyone should basically be in the choir. So, as many people as possible should join the choir because it always sounds better when there's more people, right? Um, it do, it doesn't sound bad when there's less people, but the choir should not be this thing where it's. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. It sounds great. Uh, yeah, it's it sounds great, but the uh, the choir should not be limited to people who are talented. Uh, the. You sound good. We just show up. Uh, the choir should be for as many people who, who want to lift a joyful noise to the Lord. So, um, All right. Well, that's enough of that. Um, catechism. I put my thing down. So the catechism is uh, more about the Lord's Supper here. Certainly not just eating and drinking, do these things, but the words written here, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. These words, along with the bodily eating and drinking, are the main thing in the sacrament. Um, this is basically the traditional Lutheran definition and traditional Christian definition of the word sacrament. So the word sacrament is a made-up category that really Augustine defines most clearly uh, that the Lutherans pick up on early on in the church to kind of make a category for baptism and the Lord's Supper and potentially uh, confession and absolution as well. And the, the way that Augustine talks about it is that you have a, a physical element uh, attached to a institution or a specific word of God and uh, that, that leads to the forgiveness of sins, that, that accompanies with it the forgiveness of sins. So baptism, the physical element is the water, the word is Matthew 28, go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then uh, when the water is combined with I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you get the forgiveness of sins. Same thing with the sacrament. Um, it's, not just the, it's not just eating and drinking the consecrated uh, bread and wine, i.e. the body and blood, um, but the word makes it efficacious, right? The word, the words of the words of consecration, uh, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins, um, which he's using that phrase, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins, as a way to reference the entire words of institution, right? He doesn't repeat the whole the whole thing. He's just giving a phrase there so you know what he's talking about. Uh, these words with with the eating and drinking. That's the main thing in the sacrament. 
So you have the sacrament altogether is the words along with the eating and drinking of Jesus' body and blood. And uh, whoever has that has the uh, benefits of the Lord's Supper. So last question, uh, he talked about what those benefits are, and he said forgiveness of sins, but where there is forgiveness of sins, there's also life and salvation. So you have this multitude of benefits from the Lord's Supper, and you get that all in this thing. And the, the other thing I'd say about that is that um, sometimes there's been debates about when is the sacrament the sacrament? When is the Lord's Supper the Lord's Supper? Is it at the words of consecration or is it when the, the person receives it in faith? And my answer is always, well, if you want to be really technical, the words of consecration are when the bread and the wine um, are then the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Um which is different from transubstantiation, which, which we don't need to go into that right now. But the words of consecration is the moment in time when that bread and wine become the body and blood of Jesus Christ. The bread and wine is still there, but it becomes the body and blood of Jesus Christ as well, in, with, and under, all that. Uh, however, it's not truly the Lord's Supper until it's also eaten and drinking, uh, because that's what Jesus says. He says, take, eat, take, drink. And so um, that's so. There's a couple practical things with this. Uh, one, we don't parade around. We don't do other things with the body and blood. So the Catholics will pray to the wafer, right? They'll pray to the host and say, you know, because oh, this has become the body of Jesus, and so we're gonna do something. We're gonna pray to it. We're gonna worship it. We're gonna adore it. So they have chapels of adoration, uh, which is wrong. Not because it's wrong to pray to Jesus, but because that's not what Jesus gave the Lord's Supper for. He gave it for eating and drinking. And so uh, that's kind of a practical thing. Um, but some, sometimes the uh, Calvinists or even the Baptists will accuse us of being like Catholics if we say that at, well, at the consecration, um, the, the, body and, the bread and wine become Jesus' body and blood, and especially when they see our liturgical practice uh, where we're treating it with a lot of reverence, they'll say, oh, you're making it into an idol. Say, no, because we're eating and drinking it. That's what the goal is. That's, that's the main thing. We're going to eat and drink it in the most reverent way possible because it is God, but we're not going to do other things with it too. So we, there's this balance there. Uh, the other thing with that is and I know I've, I've gone over this before. I think I've already gone over it not that long ago. But um, is that after the, the Lord's Supper, we consume everything because it is still the body and blood of Jesus, right? And to, to not cause any confusion, he says, take, eat, take, drink. And so that's what we do with it um, on, on every single time we celebrate it. So I think that's the best, just the, the best practice as far as that goes. Um, so anyway, uh, it's both eating and drinking. The, the, the other thing that goes along with that is that the eating and drinking um, isn't what makes... Sometimes people will say we should have open communion because the eating and drinking is what makes it the sacrament. Well, I'd say 
yes, eating and drinking is part of what makes it the sacrament, but that's not how Jesus talks about it. Um, and it's not how Paul talks about it either. Uh, Paul is very specific that you can receive the actual body and blood of Jesus to your detriment if you receive it out of lack of faith. And so some people will say, oh, well, like it doesn't really matter because if an unbeliever receives it, then it's just bread and wine. It's not really the body and blood. It's only the body and blood when the person believes it. And say, no, that's, that's not what Jesus says. He says, this is my body and blood. And Paul says, if you receive it, uh, unworthily, then you're receiving it to your harm and not to your good. Uh, and so we want to protect people from that, and so that's why we practice, why we practice close communion. All right. Any questions on on any of that? On the kind of consecration and reception, words, eating or drinking? Okay. Um, no, it's kind of review, but the catechism is the basis of the foundation of our faith, if you will, insofar as it's the basic tenets of the Bible, the basic tenets of Christian doctrine. So it's good to review very regularly and often. All right. I forgot my watch. What time is it? Oh, good. Okay. All right. We're picking back up with Elijah, and uh, we're going to go straight to 2 Kings 2. So we finished up 1 Kings 18 uh, with the prophets of Baal, and this is kind of the last big Elijah story that we haven't already covered. And this is when Elijah is going to be taken up into heaven and transfer his uh, kind of reign as the prophet of Israel to Elisha. So uh, we'll just kind of go through this section by section, um, really all of all of 2 Kings chapter 2. Uh, so take like the first eight verses as a chunk here. Um, and I'm just going to summarize so Elijah and Elisha are uh, walking together, um, and they're tra- so. So the author of the Kings clues you in on what's going to happen. He says, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up into heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah was traveling with Elijah from Gilgal, um, and Elijah said to Elisha, "Stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Bethel." Um, now, what's really interesting here is the word Bethel. Um, so, uh, El is, uh, God in Hebrew and, uh, Beit or Beth is house. Uh, so Bethel is a real place, uh, in, in Israel, uh, down, down near the Jordan river. But what Elijah says here, I think is kind of interesting especially the fact that the author of the Kings clues you in at the beginning there that he's going to be taken up into heaven. Um, and Elijah says, the uh, Lord has sent me to the house of God. The Lord has sent me as far as the house of God. Uh, because that's really where he's going, right? He's going to the house of God. He's going to up to heaven. Um, even though he is actually going to literally go to Bethel as well, I don't think it's a coincidence that that's the name of the place that that Elijah is sent. Um, and you might also recognize, so uh, in later on in the New Testament, you also get Bethlehem, right? Um, and, and Ham is uh, bread. And 
So I also don't think that's a coincidence that when Jesus is born, he's born in the house of the bread God um, because he will literally later on uh, say, I am the bread of life and will for the rest of the New Testament church um, throughout history uh, give himself to his church in the form of bread, right? When he, after he's born, he gives his incarnate body uh, in the form of bread. So uh, sometimes God is just clever with where he lets things happen. Um, but the, the house of the bread God there, so Bethlehem. Um, anyway, but that's not what we're talking about right now. So Elijah goes to the house of God. And uh, Elisha is very faithful and loyal. And he says, as surely as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. Now, the thing I want to just mention here is uh, loyalty because I'm not sure if um, this gets talked about a lot in the church, but loyalty is a virtue. And the, I mean, the Bible doesn't have maybe a lot to say about it um, directly, but if you look at kind of narratives of people in the Bible, you can see that loyalty is always a big virtue. So when, uh, for instance, here, when Elisha sticks with Elijah, um, he's going to be given a gift for that from God. Um, When uh, the disciples are with Jesus, um, it's a problem when they are not loyal to him, right? So uh, Judas being the the worst case, right? But then even um, the other disciples who claim to be loyal to him but then run away at the last minute, um, it it is a problem, right? And they have to be restored to fellowship. And you can see it, I mean, you can really just see it all over the place. I got tons of things popping in my head, but like if you think about... um, Paul and and Barnabas and how Paul is specific about like who needs to be on a mission with him because of who's loyal and who's not. And Paul and Mark have like a disagreement at the Jerusalem council. And, but then later um, they get reconciled and he says, yeah, Mark is actually useful for me for the gospel. So bring him back. Uh, loyalty is a, a virtue that is very valuable, especially on mission. Um, that if we're joining Jesus on his mission to seek and to save the lost, then we need people who are loyal to that mission, right? And I, I also see this with, um, I've seen this with, uh, not, not even here, but in other churches with lay people and pastors. Um, oftentimes, you know, you get a pastor who is trying his hardest. He might make a few mistakes, but what always is, helpful is when, and I'm not just saying this for my own benefit, but um, this this is just a real phenomenon, that when lay people are loyal to their pastors, things tend to go better. When they're willing to give them forgiveness and patience and, and grace, recognizing they're human too, and they, they're, they're probably going to make some mistakes, uh, but we're going to be loyal to their, to their leadership, right? And that Paul actually commands this, and he, well, the author of Hebrews. I, th- I think the author of Hebrews is Paul. But um, the author of Hebrews commands this, uh, that to be uh, faithful to the ones who keep watch over your soul, um, that, uh, how does he word that? Anyone know what verse I'm talking about? Uh, anyway, uh, be faithful to the ones who keep watch over your soul, 
um, uh, for, for to them has been given a harder task or, or something like that. So this idea of loyalty uh, to both to those who are kind of running the mission and to the mission itself is is an important idea here. And so I, I love that Elisha does this, right? Even though Elijah tells him, no, not like, don't worry about it, not right now. Um, Elisha says, yeah, nope, I'm sticking, sticking with you uh, no matter what. I think that's a good good thing. Um, okay, and then they also have uh, the sons of the prophets in verse 3 who come up. And uh, this is, I think, most likely um, the all the kind of assistant prophets that were around. So you had like, remember at the same time in Israel, you had like Obadiah and all these other prophets that Jezebel was persecuting. So you have this kind of school of prophets there in Israel. Um, and you got, and you remember that there are other prophets that aren't named in the Bible, right? There are prophets around uh, that, that God raises up that just are not named in the, in the scriptures. Um, so you have this school of prophets there, the sons of the prophets, uh, who stood at a distance and watched this all, who, who watched this all happen. Um, but Elisha is the one who sticks with Elijah and goes, goes forward. Um, and when they're when they're all kind of freaking out, Elisha says, "Yeah, I know. Be quiet," <laughs> uh, which I which I like. Um, and Elisha, so so because the sons of the prophets ask him, "Don't you know that you're?" Master is going to be taken away from you, and Elisha says, "I know. Uh, be quiet." And I think that that humble, again, that loyalty, but then also that kind of humility in accepting the will of God, and 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 going to face it with courage, is very virtuous. That Elisha is not—he's not scared, even though he knows what's going to happen. He's courageous to go experience it, right? I think a lot of a lot of people would say, well, it's done for. There's nothing I can do about it. I'm not even going to bother. I'm going to go and sulk, right? Um, but Elisha goes with his, with his master. All right. Um, and then they, so then the kind of same cycle happens again where uh, Elijah says, um, uh, stay here because now, now, now go ahead and stay here because the Lord has sent me to Jericho. And he again he says, as surely as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. And so they go to Jericho from Bethel, um, which if you look on a map, they're going closer and closer to uh, the Jordan River. It's kind of hard to track because they start in Gilgal and uh, in Gilgal, Gilgal, and uh, no one exactly knows where that is um, except for it's where the Israelites camped when they first crossed the Jordan into the Promised Land uh, with, with Joshua. Um, they said they camped at Gilgal. But no one really knows exactly where that is. So, um, but it kind of seems like they're making kind of a downward, uh, like a southeastern uh, circle um, toward, toward the Jericho. So, uh, toward the Jordan. And so they go to Jericho, um, and... Uh, same thing happens again. He says, uh, stay here because the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. Um, and he, and they, then they go to the Jordan River. Okay. And so when they get to the Jordan River, um, he strikes his cloak on the water. And the water divides uh, to the right and the left. And the two of them cross over on dry ground. 
So, um, there's a couple interesting things here. So, first of all, obviously, this is kind of the third great crossing story of the Old Testament, the crossing water story. So, the first one, you have the crossing of the Red Sea, the Exodus, uh, which is kind of the, the greatest. But then you have these two Jordan crossing stories. You have the crossing of the, uh, the Israelites over the Jordan, which we just mentioned, um, in, into, into the promised land with Joshua, uh, where they lay down the 12 stones and they bring the ark, the priests bring the ark into the Jordan and the water parts when the feet of the priests touch the, touch the Jordan River. Um, and then you have this where they, now Elijah strikes his cloak on the um, water and the water parts. And it's pretty interesting, I think, uh, to think about it this way. So when you get a Jordan crossing, this specifically reading the Old Testament back through the New brings to mind baptism. Because where, what water is Jesus baptized in? The Jordan River, right? And, um, and the Red Sea it also is a very baptismal thing. You're crossing from sin and, and death and slavery into a new land into a promised land, uh, into a journey to the promised land. Um, and then on the other Jordan crossing with Joshua, you're crossing from the wilderness into the promised land, right? So these are all kind of baptismal in this sense. Um, now when Elijah is going to go up to heaven, right? So when his life is complete and he's going to go up to heaven, he goes back through the Jordan. And I, this is pretty allegorical and you can take it or leave it, but I like to think of that as going, uh, you get to heaven through your baptism, right? When you leave this life, you, you kind of go back, you go through your baptismal waters, right? You re-enter through your baptismal waters um, into eternal life. So um, kind of like that. And then especially with the cloak there, uh, baptism, this is another big baptism theme in the Bible is that you're clothed with Christ's righteousness, right? And so... Uh, the, the cloak of Elijah is, in this sense, really kind of the waters, or um, you can think about that however you want, but just the idea that there's a cloak involved in this, and it's the Jordan, and there's water, and you start to add it up, and um, I think it becomes very baptismal in that sense. Okay, so uh, they cross over the Jordan this way, and Elisha asks, uh, so Elijah says, ask uh, whatever I can do for you before I'm taken from you. And Elisha says, let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. Um, okay. Uh, double portion. I, I did some reading on this that I found pretty interesting. So double portion is a phrase there that means, it doesn't mean twice as much. I think that's often how we read it, that it, he wants somehow like twice as much power as Elijah had. Um, that's not actually what he's asking for. It's actually a reference to inheritance. So the firstborn would always get the biggest inheritance. The firstborn male would get the biggest inheritance of a family, and then the other children, they, he would get a double portion, and then the other children would get a single portion uh, of the inheritance. And um, so he's asking, what he's asking for is to be treated like Elijah's son. Uh, that he would receive the inheritance of the, of the firstborn son of Elijah, not in a monetary way, but in this prophetic way. 
In other words, that he would, and what does the firstborn son do in most traditional cultures? He takes over the family business, right? He takes, he takes up the mantle of his father and uh, tries to uh, live out the life that his father had built, right? So uh, this is, um, in other words, the phrase that I read that kind of like explains what you're asking for is to take the principal status of, right? So to take the status of being Elijah, um, that's what Elisha is asking for. Um, and I, I think that's uh, kind of interesting there um, that that he's asking to be treated uh, in that way. The, the other way you could take it um, is... And or actually, really not the other way, but to go to go along with that, the phrase that I thought of when I was reading about this is um, this is also kind of a colloquial way that we talk, um, in that sons will often say of their fathers, especially in these kind of situations where they kind of take up his mantle or whatever, uh, that I'm I'm half the man he was. If I could only be. If I could only be half the man he was or something like that, which is kind of the opposite, but it's also kind of the same thing, right? That Elijah's saying, I need like a double portion, right? To, to be um, like Elijah. Uh, if, or if only I could be like half the man he was, if he could give me like that. So it's kind of two different ways of talking, but it did make me think that like we do kind of talk that way still in a certain sense um, when we, we use that kind of phra- phraseology. All right, um, so that's the double portion thing. Uh, he's, he's basically asking to be Elijah. And if you, rem- I mean, like we've talked about, Elijah is the prophet of, of Israel in the Old Testament, right? He's basically, him and Moses are the biggest, are in some sense the biggest prophets as far as like uh, care of people who do things, right? So that we have uh, some other big prophets who write a lot, like Isaiah and Jeremiah, but... Elijah and Moses are the ones who are on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? They're the big doer prophets. So, all right. Um, and Elijah, uh, Elijah leaves it up uh, to God's will. Um, I, and I, I love this with Elijah's faithfulness again. Like, he always leaves it up to God's will, right? Like we talked about last week with the prophets of Baal, whenever he goes to uh, pray for God to light the fire, he doesn't say, God, please light this fire so that I'm not embarrassed, he says, let them know that you are God, right? He doesn't even say how they sh- he should do that, right? So again, um, we get this Elijah leaving it up to God's will. He says, if you see me being taken from you, it will be yours. If you don't, it's not. It's up to God, right? It's up to God. Now, of course, Elijah, Elisha will see Elijah being taken up um, and it will be his and he will go and be a prophet a good prophet in Israel. So, um, okay, then we get the chariots of fire. So as they're walking and talking, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire came up and separated them. What what time is it? One minute. Okay, I'll do the chariots of fire and, and then we'll get ready for church. So um, the chariots of fire are interesting because this, I mean, this is kind of the only story in the Bible that involves anything chariots of fire. It's not like the crossing of the Jordan where we have other references. We can cross-reference here. Um, so this, I think, goes to... Um, this is helpful 
when you know a little bit of Canaanite mythology, uh, like the Bells and the Asherah, because um, so I, when I was when I was reading about this in Canaanite mythology, there's a storm god. His name's Hadad, a storm god <coughs> who under him has a charioteer uh, who drives the a chariot of fire who drives the different Canaanite gods around. Uh, and his name is Rakib El, so the the god of something. I don't I don't know. Um, but Rakib El would drive right through the skies, um, kind of under the reign of the the storm god, and would uh, drive. He was like the, ta- the the Uber for Canaanite gods. And um, anyhow, uh, when God does this for Elijah, I think this is a if you think about Elijah's ministry, a lot of what he's doing is calling people to repentance for their belief in Canaanite gods. And so I think this is kind of a uh, um, a tell, telling off the, the, the bell worshipers um, from God's perspective that Elijah, uh, that, and this is what God, God does this all the time, right? So in the prophets, God will constantly make fun of um, the Canaanite gods and the, the kind of uh, Ugaritic and, and Babylonian myth mythologies um, that people believe around those places. And he'll say things like, oh, oh yeah, the, uh, uh, what, the, the sea monsters, I created those. <laughs> so in Babylonian myth, mythology, Creation happens because there's a big sea monster fight. And God says, oh, yeah, the sea monsters, yeah, I created those. <laughs> um, so he'll constantly kind of make fun or poke fun at the uh, different false gods of the time. And I think that's what he's doing here is he sends a real chariot of fire that everyone can see uh, that Elijah, um, who has his whole life confessed Yahweh, uh, gets to ride into heaven on. Um, and so it's kind of, I think, poking fun at the, the Canaanite mythology of the time is what's going on there. Um, and the fire part there, again, you also have like the spirit as fire uh, and the fire of the, that God lit to show the bell prophets to be false um, just back in 1 Kings 18. Um, so you have kind of this, this ongoing theme of fire as well in Elijah's life. So... Uh, anyhow, um, next week we'll talk about what happens right after Elisha then gets the double portion and then goes down, um, into, uh, to go on and be a prophet in Israel. And, uh, it's kind of an interesting story and it's a little bit, uh, gruesome or shocking what, what happens. So I'll leave you with that teaser, but any, uh, questions, comments? Steve? The chariots of fire seems to be a little more exciting than when Enoch was taken up to heaven. Right. Yeah, Enoch, like, we don't get a lot of detail about, right? He walked with God. That's about it. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question. Like, you know, it's always an interesting question. Why do we get what we get in the Bible? (laughs) Right? What? Why? Why is it? Why are these things written um, and not, 
you know, why do we not get more detail about this or more detail about this or that? Like, I mean, there are things that I wish I got more detail about, like from a pastoral perspective. Like, I, I mean, I, I 100% believe in, like 110% believe that closed communion is the biblical doctrine. Um, but it does take, like, a decent amount of exegetical work and labor to um, understand what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11 and, and uh, why this has been the historic practice of the church and all of this. And it, it's like, sometimes I wish, especially when trying to explain this to people, like, Paul could have, like, added an extra paragraph that, you know, would have made things a little easier on me, you know. <laughs> Uh, there, there are things like that that I just wish, you know, we got more detail about, but we don't. Um, but at the end of the day, I think that's in God's wisdom, right? The, John says, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of, the, of God. And um, we have what God gave us. And it, it is sufficient. It is, it is right and it is good and salutary. And it's, it's on us when we're unclear or when we're um, working through these things, it's on us to see what God God would have us believe um, in His Scripture. Even when you know, and there are things that we're just never in our lifetime we're never gonna understand why God gave it to us. You know, I'm never gonna understand why God gave us so many genealogy lists in First and you know First Chronicles, but He did, and uh, they're meaningful. I don't know fully what the meaning is yet. I hope to, but uh, anyway, that's it. Yeah. So I was thinking about this because of, you know, thinking about some, uh, talking to some people from different evangelical circles. Um, but I think that part of the reason why so many of these things aren't written out is because, one, the apostles assumed that the practice would continue through the church, uh, and that later, like in times like these, that now we would be able to identify the church from the assumed practices so that we have this mm-hmm. kind of line of practice of the church that takes us to what is church now and what is not church now. Yeah, yeah, no, and that's that's certainly true. Like, we, we do oftentimes lean on the wisdom of our fathers, as we should. Um, it would be foolish to say that uh, the church has never thought about anything before or to pretend like the church has never thought about anything before, and then just try and do things all on our own from from a you know like from a blank slate. Um, I always had a I had a professor that always made a distinction between sola scriptura, which means that um, we get all our doctrine from scripture, and that the scripture is the norm and rule of all faith and life, um, and only scripture is infallible. And then what he called uh, like a, a naked scripture view, which is that um, kind of all of that, but also that we must uh, like ignore the church history and the church fathers and uh, try and start from like a blank slate and pretend like that no one has ever thought about these things before. Right. Sola Scriptura doesn't mean that we can't learn from our fathers. Right. We, we can. Um, that. It's, it's a gift from God that we have really smart people like Augustine and Luther and other 
other church fathers who have thought about these things before to help us uh, interpret them. But that all the while we say those people are fallible, the scriptures are infallible. And um, so kind of holding that balance, right? So, yeah, good, good point. Anything else? All right. Let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for all uh, the good gifts that you've given us. We pray that you would help us uh, to be loyal and faithful people, especially to your word. And we pray that you would bless our time of worship today together, uh, that it may be edifying to all those here, that they may grow in the fruit of the Spirit and in wisdom and in the knowledge of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray this through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.